Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Today, we're devoting our deep dive episode to the problem that the Supreme Court has been grappling with for decades, partisan gerrymandering. That issue will once again come to the court on March 26th, when the court hears two cases challenging voting maps that critics say were drawn to specifically disadvantage one political party. In one case, Rucho against Common Cause, the claim is that North Carolina Republicans gerrymandered their maps to harm Democrats. In the other, Lamone against Benisek, the claim is that Maryland Democrats did the same to Republicans. Today, we're going to chat with Paul Smith, who is representing those challenging the maps in the North Carolina case, and former Wisconsin Solicitor General Misha Saitlin, who defended that state against partisan gerrymandering claims just last term. But before we do that, Kimberly, can you get us up to speed on the background of the issue and what's at stake? Well, sure, Jordan. So what's at stake here is potentially huge, and that includes really the makeup of the legislative branches and, you know, pretty much everything that flows from that, really all the high-pile issues that the Supreme Court is hearing, many of them come down to who's in charge of the legislature. So the stakes are pretty high, but the issue before the Supreme Court is somewhat more narrow. So there's been a consensus on the court for some time now that extreme partisan gerrymandering can run afoul of the Constitution by letting legislatures pick their voters rather than the other way around. But the problem for the court has been what, if anything, the courts can do about it. So for the justices, the question is whether they can find a neutral and manageable way to sort out kind of -of run-of-the-mill partisan that you would expect whenever legislatures draw maps and really these extreme partisan considerations that violate the Constitution. And so far, they haven't been able to find that manageable standard. So when the justices considered this issue in 2004, four justices thought that there was no judicially manageable standard for the courts to police these harms. Another four believed that there could be manageable standards, but among them, they actually suggested three different ways to do it. And then there was Justice Kennedy in the middle. So the court agreed to take another look at the issue after splitting 414 just last term, but it didn't really have any better luck this time around. The justices in particular were struggling during oral argument, and the chief justice kind of really hit the nail on the head. He was particularly concerned with how the court would look to the public if it were forced to pick a winner in these really politically fraught issues. Here's the chief last term stating some of those concerns. Since the 60s. Mr. Smith, I'm going to follow an example of one of my colleagues and lay out for you as concisely as I can (laughs) what is is the main problem for me and give you an opportunity to uh, address it. Um, I would think if these, if the claim is allowed to proceed, there will naturally be a lot of these claims raised around the country. Politics is a very important driving force and those claims will be raised. And every one of them will come here for a decision on the merits. These cases are not within our discretionary jurisdiction. They're the mandatory jurisdiction. We will have to decide in every case whether the Democrats win or the Republicans win. So it's going to be a problem here across the board. Uh, uh, And if you're the intelligent man on the street and the court issues a decision and, let's say, okay, the Democrats win, and that person will say, well, why did the Democrats win? And the answer is going to be, because EG was greater than 7%, where EG is the sigma of party X wasted votes minus the sigma of party Y wasted votes, 
over the sigma of party X votes plus party Y votes. And the intelligent man on the street is going to say that's a bunch of baloney. It must be because the Supreme Court preferred the Democrats over the Republicans. And that's going to come out one case after another as these cases are brought in every state. And that is going to cause very serious harm to the status uh, and integrity of the decisions of this court in the eyes of the country. And then Justice Breyer, like many of the other justices, struggled with the various tests that the parties had put in front of the court in order to provide that manageable standard to police partisan gerrymandering claims. Here he is uh, during arguments last term. But I raise it not for that reason. I raise it because I want to think if there is some harm in doing that that I haven't thought of. Is there some reason, uh, would it be harmful to somebody? Uh, Because I do see an advantage. You could have a blackboard and have everyone's theory on it. And and then you'd have the pros and cons, and then you'd be able to look at them all, and then you'd be able to see perhaps different ones for different variations. And, you know, that's uh, maybe there are different parts of gerrymandering that rises in different da-da-da. You see the point. Sure. Okay. You can't think of a reason not to do it. So in the end, last term, the court sent both cases that it was considering back to the lower courts on procedural grounds. And this was the Maryland case was here again. And then the other case was one out of Wisconsin. But now the issue has bubbled back up to the Supreme Court in both that Maryland case and a new North Carolina case. The lower courts in both of those cases invalidated the state's congressional maps as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders. And so that's how they come to the court. And so the case again provides the opportunity to address some of the chief's concerns and to give a win actually to both parties as it's Republicans in North Carolina who allegedly did the gerrymandering, but it's Democrats in Maryland. Thanks for catching us up on that, Kimberly. And let's speak with our first guest, Paul Smith of the Campaign Legal Center, who argued on behalf of the Wisconsin plaintiffs last term and who represents the plaintiffs challenging the North Carolina maps in front of the justices this term. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Happy to do it. So can you give us an idea of where the sticking points were for the justices the last time around that this issue was argued? What did the justices focus on during those oral arguments last time? Well, one of the issues in these cases is always um, how do you draw lines? How do you identify um, maps that go too far and are not just politics as usual, but really fundamentally anti-democratic? And I was certainly getting questions about that from some people. In the end, the court, though, uh, hunted the Wisconsin case on a different ground. It said we hadn't proved standing in the correct way. We had come in with plaintiffs who said we are uh, Democrats who work with all the other Democrats in the state to try to gain our uh, political, have our political view uh, win out, and this gerrymandering is interfering with that. They said you have to come back and you have to show particular places on the map and have particular plaintiffs who live there uh, that you're complaining about and do it in a more granular, specific way. And so is that going to be an issue this time around, or what is going to be different during these arguments? Well, the, the cases that are back up there now from North Carolina and Maryland involve uh, plaintiffs complaining about their particular districts where they say they're packed or cracked and that their vote is diluted. So the standing issue, I think, is pretty much off the table at this point. And, and the, the cases seem to be set up to really uh, have the court finally decide up or down whether or not gerrymandering is going to be a viable uh, cause of action in federal court. It, it, 
the issue again is not so much whether it's constitutional. It pretty clearly is unconstitutional to try to distort democracy using district lines. But there's this issue of what's the what's the right standard. So one of the things I think that is going to be uh, different this time around is obviously that we have a new justice. Uh, we've traded Justice Kennedy for Justice Kavanaugh. Do you have any idea about how Justice Kavanaugh thinks about these issues, or is he just a real question mark? He's a question mark. I mean, you can you can look at the people with whom he's ideologically similar and maybe draw some conclusions, but he came from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which just has jurisdiction over D.C. and sort of national issues, doesn't handle cases about state-level election manipulation and the like. So he doesn't have much of a record, if anything, on these kinds of issues. And so circling back to the political issue that underlies this entire gerrymandering issue. Who is it, uh, if there is one particular party, who would stand to win from a court ruling in favor of your clients? Democrats, Republicans, both, neither. Is there one party that emerges as a clear winner or loser, depending how this case is resolved, if the justices do actually tackle it on the merits? Well, it's a bit of a complicated answer. In the very short run, it is the Democrats who would be in a better position because back in 2010, there was an extraordinarily strong Republican year, which meant that in 2011, when all the maps around the country had to be redrawn by various legislatures, the Republicans were pretty much in control most places. Uh, And those maps are still there. Uh, By 2021, it's a much more mixed picture, I think, the politics being that Democrats are gaining in a lot of legislatures. uh, And uh, so I don't think you can say that in the next round of redistricting, if there's a real meaningful limit on gerrymandering, it'll have any particular partisan impact one way or the other. It'll just limit both parties from doing what they like to do, which is try to gain unfair advantage. And so you mentioned uh, 2021 as being important, and that's because that's when the redistricting typically happens after the 2020 census. But what are the effects likely to be for the 2020 election itself? Or is this really coming too late to affect those elections? Well, no, I I think if, if we were to win a victory in the North Carolina case, challenging the congressional districts in North Carolina, the decision would likely be in June, and that would leave plenty of time for a a redraw of the map for 2020. Uh, You'd want to have a new map by early 2020, but that still leaves, what, six months or something for the remedy process to go ahead. And so we think that at least in the cases that are now pending, we would there would be a remedy. And I think there might be some other places people might try to rush into court. But certainly for, for, for North Carolina Congress, we would very much insist, I think, that we get a, a new map uh, before the 2020 election. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul. Is there anything else that you think is critically important for listeners to know before we turn to our second guest? Well, I guess that the only thing I would say is this is a particular kind of constitutional abuse that, that is for courts to fix because politicians, you can't, they're not going to fix it. They are the ones who benefit from gerrymandering, the ones that are in power. And so this is an area where we really need the courts to step up, and that's going to be a message to give to the court. Yeah, I think you said in your last argument that if the courts don't step in here, that we're going to be seeing some pretty extreme gerrymanders. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. The combination of the technology now available, the computing, and the the polarized, rather uh, predictable electorate makes it very easy to, to gerrymander and have it stick for a full 10 years. And I think if the court gives a green light, people are almost going to feel like they have to do it all over the country. And it's going to be unfortunate for our democracy. Well, Paul, thank you so much for sharing those insights with us and being a guest on Cases and Controversies. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye.
Well, that was a really good interview with Paul. Really yeah. interesting. Is there anything that stuck out to you in what Paul said, Jordan? Well, he did. He was pretty confident, it seemed, that the standing issue was off the table. Uh, I wonder if the justices are going to think that. And we'll see what our, our next guest has to say about that and see if he agrees that it's off the table. Well, that's right. So our next guest is former Wisconsin Solicitor General Misha Salen, who actually faced off against Paul Smith in that Wisconsin case and who now represents one of the amicus in the North Carolina case. He's currently a partner at Troutman Sanders. So can you give us an idea of what some of the sticking points were for the justices the last time around when they heard this issue? You know, really, what did they focus on during oral argument? What seemed to be kind of the biggest issues for them? The last time the uh, issue of political gerrymandering was before the court, uh, which was last term, the Supreme Court uh, held uh, in a 9 0 decision that plaintiffs in the w- Wisconsin case did not have standing because they were bringing a claim of statewide injury, which the Supreme Court has never recognized. So that was, I think, one of the critical sticking points for the Supreme Court, the statewide nature of an injury. And I think the reason for, for that is that, as Justice O'Connor explained decades ago, any claims of statewide political gerrymandering necessarily boil down to an assertion of proportional representation, a claim that there is a constitutional right for proportional representation. And the Supreme Court has said over and over again that there is no such constitutional right. Huh. And so is that is that standing issue going to be an issue for the cases that are up at the Supreme Court now, or have the plaintiffs seemingly taken care of, of the problems that presented themselves last time around? In the North Carolina case, where I represent as amicus a couple, some of the members of the North Carolina congressional delegation, that problem will continue to be fatal. The claims there are inherently statewide. They are based on statewide vote-to-seat ratios, and the plaintiffs there as a result on the same reasoning as in Gill will not have standing, and if the court goes beyond standing, will not be able to state a claim, a a justiciable claim. Now, in the the Maryland case, the, the claim focuses on a single district and does not rely upon statewide proportional representation of the kind that the Supreme Court held in uh, the the Wisconsin case last term is beyond the reach of the federal courts under Article 3. So the the Maryland case has different categories of difficulties than the North Carolina case. And so at a broader level, who stands to win and lose here from how the justices come down this time if they wind up taking on the issue on the merits? Democrats, Republicans, who sort of has more to win and, and more to lose here in this situation, depending how the justices come down this time? So I think it depends on how the court decides. Obviously, if the court decides the political gerrymander claims is non-justiciable, I think the the winner would be democracy. And and I say that because the, the claim that the plaintiffs are making is ultimately that legislatures cannot draw maps. They should be given to panels of experts. And by panels of experts, they really mean bureaucrats, people who are not elected representatives. So th- that would be the winner if the court held that these claims are non-justiciable. Now, if the Supreme Court did hold that some of these claims are justiciable, the winners and losers would depend on how the court ruled. If the court accepted anything like the claims made in the North Carolina case, the winner would be the Democratic Party. 
party. The statewide metrics that are the heart of the North Carolina case are are clearly under the experts' testimony of the of the plaintiffs in those cases, wildly biased towards the current Democratic Party, which is why I think you see the stark partisan divide between the amici in both sides in the North Carolina case, because the political stakes are so high. The statewide request that the plaintiffs have asked for in the North Carolina case would, in fact, act as a practicality, act as a giant subsidy to the Democratic Party by creating, through, through litigation, a cure for the geographic problem that the Democratic Party has experienced because so many of its voters are concentrated in major cities. Under the approach that they urge, Democrats in a state like Illinois could gerrymander to their heart's delight because on the statewide metrics that the plaintiffs urge, the clear partisan intent to create as many Democrats as possible in the legislature is quoted as neutral because it, on a statewide basis, that just neutralizes the disadvantage the Democrats have by having so many of their voters live in a place like Chicago. Whereas when Republicans were to act the same way on the statewide metrics, these are quoted as wildly asymmetrical. Hmm. So it sounds like you're saying that if they go with the thing that the plaintiffs in the North Carolina case are, are putting forth and they decide to kind of police partisan gerrymandering that way, it wouldn't just be a win for Democrats in North Carolina, but potentially could be a win for them everywhere where they where their big cities are basically everywhere. Is that is that right? That's exactly right. And I think, you know, when you when you look back in the past at partisan gerrymandering litigation before this statewide symmetry metric was cooked up. It was really kind of politically heterodox. You'd have Republicans on one side, Democrats on the other, or vice versa, and, you know, and it would be based on the the, the, the factors that were happening at the time. Here, you in the North Carolina case, you have this stark partisan divide where you have Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other. It's because the approach that has been now fronted by plaintiffs like those in North Carolina is so politically biased in practical reality, given modern geographic concentration of voters. Yeah, we see that, you know, the the situation in North Carolina surrounding redistricting has been really have this sharp political divide, even in the um, in the actual redistricting itself. There's been some harsh words from some of the lower courts on on how Republicans went about doing these redistrictings. But I guess the question for the, the Supreme Court is whether or not, you know, the judiciary should really be in the business of doing this. And I'm just wondering, you know, this time around in the arguments, what do you expect to be different or do you really expect them to be the same? I mean, putting aside the standing issue. Are there any concerns about the merits that the justices might have this time that they didn't have the last time? I think that one of the main concerns in this area of law and why the Supreme Court has never recognized the political gerrymandering doctrine in the decades where plaintiffs have been trying it is that there is has not been a limited and precise standard mm-hmm. proposed by anyone. And that was Justice Kennedy's words. And I think those words were very carefully chosen. The reason that you need a limited and precise standard is that politics is all pervasive. It, these are maps being drawn by politicians, but they are, by definition, political. So in order to have a judiciable doctrine that would not sweep out every single map drawn by a legislature, you need something precise. And what you, what you see in, in decisions like the North Carolina decision is that there's really no way to do it. The judges there basically announced four different constitutional provisions under which they think political gerrymandering is unconstitutional in a, in a way that does not present itself to limitation in future cases. 
if the Supreme Court were to hold consistent with the district court decision in North Carolina, it would open the door to a slew of litigation every time a legislature drew a map. And I think the Supreme Court justices are going to be very wary of that. And so speaking of the justices, you mentioned Justice Kennedy, but he's since retired and Justice Kavanaugh has taken his place. Do you have any thoughts on how that change in the personnel on the court might wind up affecting how the court comes down on these issues? I don't want to speculate about any particular justices, but I will say that when I was getting prepared to argue the the, the Guild versus Woodford case last term, this was the Wisconsin case, lots of people were speculating about Justice Kennedy then, and I got a lot of, asked a lot of questions like that. And what I said is, I think we have such a strong case, we have such strong arguments, and plaintiffs have failed so completely to propose a limited and precise standard, that I think that we should be able to get more than five justices, that we should be able to get nine justices to hold that what plaintiffs have done is just not what the court is looking for. And I was very heartened that all nine justices in the in the Wisconsin case decided that the plaintiffs did not submit something sufficient for Article Three standing. So my my hope is that despite the desire by some on in the political spectrum uh, for robust court intervention, that the Supreme Court speaks broadly and speaks hopefully unanimously in holding that federal courts should not be in the business of deciding when politicians have acted too politically. Well, I'm sure that will be North Carolina and Maryland's goal in these cases is to win a 9-0 victory. So good luck to them. And we really appreciate you coming on the show and being our guest. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, and congrats on the new position. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, well, another great interview. And that will do it for our deep dive episode. The court is on break until March 18th. You can look out for our next SCOTUS sneak peek that week where we'll run down the arguments that the court will be hearing during its March sitting. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest news at Bloomberg Law at news.bloomberglaw.com. Wow, that's good. You really thrown me off here, Jordan. (laughs) I'm like a hype man coming in, like, say the, the end of the verse. Dot com. All right. Well, (laughs) thanks for listening. Bye.